It is a blessing to be with all of you tonight. Find your way to Psalm 27 this evening, Psalm 27. If you need a Bible, there's a stack of Bibles there on the back shelf, but we would love for you to follow along with us if you're able. You may have seen a trailer for a new movie that is out right now titled The 33. It tells the story of the Chilean miners who were trapped 2,000 feet under the earth for 69 days back in 2010. The promotions for the film are promising to highlight the Christian faith of some of the miners. Jose Enriquez, who many in the group described as the pastor throughout the ordeal, he said this after being rescued, we realized we had only one alternative and that was God himself. There in the mine, they would meet twice daily for prayer at noon and at 6 p.m. The prayer meetings soon evolved into Bible studies with Enriquez preaching from memory in the dark and with men singing worship songs together. At one point in a correspondence they sent up, Enriquez wrote in his letter, I am fine because Christ lives in me. Our Christian faith illuminates and it invigorates. Author and poet Margaret Sangster once wrote this, faith can place a candle in the darkest night. A wonderful sentiment. And that sentiment is the launch pad of one of King David's most beautiful psalms, Psalm 27. Though he was in a time of immense strain in his life, he pours out a song of confident satisfaction in the Lord. Though he finds himself in darkness, he can see God on display, shining. Though he seems buried in crisis, his faith produces contentment. And what a uh, blessing for us that the Lord gave him this song to pour out of his heart and to be um, preserved for human history that we can see a faith like this. And we aren't sure what the specific historical context of this psalm is. Sometimes we know the actual background um, and sometimes we're not told. But it's clear that whatever it was, David was most definitely in danger. At the writing of this psalm, he was susceptible to enemies. He was separated from the tabernacle. It seems he even had a strain on his family relationships. And from all of this comes a beautiful song showing a living faith of potency, a faith of resolve. And it shows us a man who is not only has an intellectual um, or a theoretical devotion to God, he doesn't just have an intellectual faith, but a vigorous faith that makes a difference in the dark nights of life. And so David here encourages us by declaring the great acts of God, and he examples to us how to have our faith at the helm of our lives and to be anchored in the Lord and how that will make such a difference in day or night of our uh, circumstances. David starts in verses one through six, and there he recounts the acts of God. Beginning in verse one, here's what we read. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You know, we don't need to know the exact circumstances to recognize that David is in trouble in this psalm. As you peruse down, he talks a lot about enemies. He talks a lot about being in danger. He talks about his need for rescue. He's definitely on the run. And here in this verse, in the context, we see that he feels weak. He feels like he's in the dark. And unlike the Chilean miners who were accidentally trapped in their cave, you know, David was a guy who often had to flee into caves willingly uh, for survival. When Saul was chasing them, he had to flee into a cave. At one point, the Philistines are doing all this stuff. He had to flee into the cave of Adullam. And so David had to <clears throat> go into the dark of a cave 
to survive his attackers from time to time. But in one of these moments, in a moment of quiet and rest, he was no doubt keeping a watchful eye out for attackers, but he paused and he considered his own life, he considered his God, and when he did that, he could immediately find comfort because he knew that God is a light and God is a deliverer and God is strength to his people. I mean, I love that. This is a psalm. There's lots of different kinds of psalms and you know, obviously the Psalms are very emotional and very personal, but as we look at this one, there's no, there's no warming up, right? There's no winding up. We just start and immediately he's declaring the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the acts of God. The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And we have to keep remembering that he is writing this probably in a cave somewhere on the run from some kind of enemy. Because of God's presence, in his life, he could see where he was going and he knew what his destination would be, right? He said, the Lord is my light, the Lord is my salvation. He knew where he was going, he could see where he was going and he knew where he was headed. He knew he wasn't lost at all. He was headed toward the Lord, he was headed toward salvation. God would illuminate his steps, God would be his shield. And so whether we're in the light of day or the dark of night, when we stop to consider the reality of God and the reality of his work, the things that God is doing, not just in our lives, but all over the world, day and night, accomplishing his will, it should give us immediate perspective in every situation. And this is one of the beautiful things about this psalm. So much pressure, so much danger, so much crisis, but immediate perspective because he stops to consider the Lord and consider the work of the Lord and the attributes of his God. David had that perspective. He understood the strength and the salvation of a relationship with God, which is why he said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He didn't say, the Lord could be my light and my salvation, or he didn't say, I wish he was a light and a salvation. He said, no, the Lord is. He knew no matter what that, that that was true of God and true of his relationship with God. And that consideration drove fear out of his heart. You know, right now in the Christian culture, there's a lot of talk about brokenness, sort of a buzzword. Uh, you'll hear it in music and books and sermons a lot right now. And I understand the idea of where it's coming from, you know, uh, and, and perhaps a lot of it comes from a desire uh, for humility and, and that sort of thing. But it seems to me that out in the wider Christian culture right now, there's almost a celebration of brokenness. And from that comes a desire to sort of stay that way. Now, let's all celebrate how broken we are. And let's all talk about how broken we are. And let's all be excited about brokenness and that sort of thing. And, you know, as if that makes us more genuine as people or makes our Christianity more meaningful, that we're sort of limping along and, and barely able to function is sort of the cultural understanding out there. But when we read the Bible, that's just not what we see. That's not the kind of attitude we see people of God who have great faith in God. That's not what we see at all. We see a verse like this where the people of God are not glorying in brokenness, but they glory in the God who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, another psalm says. It says he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. The Bible says that we are to glory in the God who brings beauty from the ashes. He doesn't just leave the ashes there in an ash heap. He says, I'm gonna do something with this. I'm gonna put this back together. I am going to make you strong in weakness, not just leave you weak. And, the, and David understood this. He said, the Lord is my strength. 
The Lord's plan is to fill us with so much strength that fear is removed. This kind of strength, verse two. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. And so David first remembered back to what God had already done. When the wicked came against me, this is what the Lord did. And that gave him a confident hope for what God would do in the future. Though an army encamps against me, though a war rises against me, I know what the Lord will do. God is very consistent. You know, God's not always predictable. And he often does things that we don't think he should do or, you know, in the sense of, hey, Lord, I want you to do this in my life. And the Lord uh, perhaps has a different plan that he's going to reveal. He's not always predictable, but he's very consistent. He changes not. His character doesn't change. He is a defender of his people now and always, right? Uh, He's a constant victor over the great enemies of our lives, sin and death and the devil. And those enemies will never overcome our God. He wouldn't be overcome in David's life. He's not gonna be overcome in your life. He is a God victorious. He is God almighty. He is God who is able and he does not change. That is going to stay the same. And as David considered the attributes and the actions of God, it rallied his heart and his mind to a greater and greater growing confidence and assurance and a bold assertion that we see there in verse three. He says, you know what? Even if an entire army lines up against me by myself, I'm not afraid. If a whole country declares war on me by myself, I am not afraid. Well, that's quite a faith, right? I mean, that's, that's something that is a remarkable statement for him to make. But we should notice that his great faith was not rooted in self. It was rooted in God. It was rooted in the character of God, the person of God, the activity of God. It had nothing to do with him as an individual or his gifts or his talents or his you know, rule or reign or anything like that. It was all rooted in the Lord. His faith also wasn't rooted in his circumstances. It was rooted in the God who is above all circumstances. And we should also notice that David did not expect God to remove every enemy or bypass every conflict. Uh, Very, very key, I think. Realize that David recognized that, well, of course, conflicts are going to arise. Of course, I'm going to face enemies. I'm just not worried about it. I just am not afraid of them because I know that the Lord is with me. He didn't ask the Lord to remove those things or bypass all of those things. He knew that there were struggles and adversaries and trials ahead, but that didn't bother him because his faith was producing the byproduct of hope. And he resolved within his heart to rely upon that hope and allow it to shape his attitudes. You know, he drew a line in his heart and he said, my heart shall not fear. He's making a decision. He's resolving. He's allowing his faith to operate, not just intellectually, but in his attitudes. He says, you know, I'm gonna draw a line. I'm going to choose to allow hope to fill my heart, to fill my thoughts, and to fill my attitudes, and my heart shall not fear. And because he of who he knew God to be because he knew the works that God had done, David was able to marshal his heart to behave faithfully and hopefully. And all this was possible just because he sat back and considered his God. He considered the Lord and considered all that God is, all that God had done in his life, all that God had promised to do. And he was able to reign in his heart in this time of great distress and great pressure. Verse four, one thing, Have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord 
all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For all of his flaws and all of his mistakes, you know, David had a really incredible ability to focus on the most important thing in the situations he found himself in. He had a, it was very, very interesting, um, this ability that he had. David, very flawed person, a man who made a significant number of serious mistakes um, throughout his story in the Bible. But one thing that he would consistently get right is being able to sort of step back from his situation and see the most important thing, the heavenly thing, the spiritual thing. He could see the crucial issue and the weight of heaven in his circumstances. For example, let me give you a couple of examples. When he went to fight Goliath, he just showed up. He wasn't there to fight. He was just there to deliver cheese to the captain and see his brothers. But then he sees this situation, and for all of these days, like 40 days, Goliath had been coming out and yelling and cursing and you know, blaspheming the Lord, and all the soldiers of all of Israel were afraid. Saul was afraid to fight him. No one was willing to go out. And he says, well, why don't we go fight this guy? And all the other soldiers were saying, well, no one can fight him. We need more height. We need more weapons. You need armor. We, we just can't do it. We need a tank to go out against this guy. But what did David say? He says, hey, we don't need any of that. We don't need any of that. Why? Because the Lord's with us. Hey, he's blaspheming the Lord. The Lord is with us. It doesn't matter if I go out or anybody goes out. Let's just go out and cut this guy down. And that's exactly what happened. He had the proper heavenly perspective. He was stepping back and he realized the crucial thing, the spiritual thing. And he says, well, this isn't about the weight of our spear. This isn't about the size of the shield. This isn't about the height of the man. This is about the power of God. And the Lord is willing to use anybody in the camp of Israel to overthrow this Philistine. Or another example where he was able to you know, have this spiritual perspective. When he did uh, have that uh, sin with Bathsheba and that great moment of repentance after his adultery, um, when he was confronted and he, he repented and he, had, he repented of that um, you know, adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, and what did David say? He could correctly say, and it boggles our minds, but it was true. He said, against God and God alone have I sinned. You see, his mind was fixed on the spiritual and, and the heavenly, and he was able to think on a very spiritual plane, understand the crucial, the great issue of life, where he wasn't distracted by the thing going on down here. There's so many other examples. You know, when, when Saul is there in the cave, and David's further back in the cave and his guys are saying, look, God has delivered him into your hand. Knock him down. You should kill him right here. And David stopped and he understood the spiritual, the heavenly. And he says, man, I'm not gonna touch the Lord's anointed. If the Lord wants to do something, the Lord can do something. I'm not gonna kill this guy. Even though all the people around him are saying, hey, God has delivered him into your hand. David was able to really connect with the mind of the Lord and, and understand things from the heavenly perspective and live you know, so spiritually in comparison to the people around him. And of course, he made mistakes. Of course, he uh, sinned, and in some ways, very greatly, but a great example of having a heavenly and a spiritual perspective. He was fixed on those in his thinking. And so here in a time of desperate need, he was able to assess his heart, and he came to this conclusion. What I really require is more of the presence of God. That's the one thing. That's what I want. And not only did he desire it, he asked for it, and he went after it. He said, that will I seek. The one thing I desire, that will I seek. 
Herbert Lockyer once wrote this, holy desires must lead to resolute action. And James would say, faith without works is dead. So it was one thing for David to say, well, I just wish I could be in the presence of God, but he paired that with activity. He said, you know what? That will I seek after. David's heart longed for communion with God. He wanted to dwell in the temple. He wanted to inquire after the Lord and explore his word. He wanted to spend his days enjoying the pleasantness of God. It was the pursuit of his life. And this man who, from our perspective, knew God so well, you know, if you were sort of cataloging the different characters in the Bible and who were some of the characters that knew God so well, well, David's definitely on that list. You know, as you read his Psalms and you read his story, you, you can see a closeness and an intimacy that he had in the relationship with the Lord. And yet, even this guy who knew God so well was always saying, man, I've got more to discover. I've got more to inquire about. I've got more to lay bare before the Lord. I've got more to take in and enjoy. So much so that he says, it's going to take all the days of my life. What I want is just to do that for all of the days of my life, to inquire after the Lord. And then he set his heart and his steps toward the presence of God. Verse five, he says this, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And so the Lord would provide two measures of defense for David. He would hide him in the pavilion and he would set him on a rock. The pavilion was the tent of God. He says there that he was not just in the tabernacle, but he says in the secret place in the tabernacle. There is a security and a help that is only known to the people of God. Not that all of God's people are always supernaturally protected in every circumstance. All around the world right now in many, many other places, perhaps most countries of the world, people of, uh, people of God, Christians, are persecuted and are oppressed uh, sometimes to the death for their faith. And so it's not that the Lord always keeps us physically secure in every circumstance, um, but there is a peace and a security that are only known to the people of God because only God can bring the kind of peace to our hearts and minds that David demonstrates here. Only God can orchestrate the whole of life for our good when people around us mean it for evil. Outside of the fold of God, we cannot know that kind of secret provision and protection. Outside of the fold of God, we cannot know the peace that passes all understanding the kind of peace where a person trapped 2,000 feet below the surface of the earth for 69 days can say, I am fine because Christ is with me. The Lord is with me. That's the kind of peace that we're talking about, the kind of secret provision and protection there from the pavilion of the Lord. But then he says also that the Lord will set him high upon the rock. Of course, we recognize that our rock is Christ. Putting ourselves in the picture, we see that God secures us in Christ. He sets us high up in our Savior so that when people come looking for us, they will see the magnified Christ as the rock of our salvation. And then when people see us, they will undoubtedly see the strength of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and the greatness of Christ as we are established in him. Another psalm says that he took us out of the miry clay and set our feet firm upon the rock and established us there. And the Lord hides us in plain sight. And so David is saying, hey, the Lord, Lord, hide me, rescue me, get me, you know, safe from my enemies. And the Lord says, okay, I will do that. I'm going to give you, you know, secret provision from the pavilion. And then I'm going to set you on display on the rock where everybody can come and see exactly where you are, but you're going to be atop this rock of great strength and this rock who we understand to be Christ. The Lord hides us in plain sight before the world. Because his plan is to make a testimony and a witness out of you and I. 
and that others may know the Savior and the power of his salvation as it works through our lives. Verse six says this, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. God wants to get us up higher than the surface of the earth. And he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. His intention for us is not to stay broken down in the dumps. His intention is to get us high up on the holy hill in mind and in understanding and in expectation. After remembering the Lord and thinking through his works and recounting all that the Lord does, David's response was devotion and sacrifice and singing. The language there actually says, I will sing and I will sing. And I love that. And he would bring, it says, a sacrifice of shouting to the Lord. This victorious God of ours deserves exuberant praise. And so David had recounted the Lord and what he had done. And now in verses seven through 12, we see David's request of the Lord. It says in verse seven, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Having a strong faith or a vibrant faith doesn't mean we don't have troubles or needs or moments of desperation. It doesn't mean that at all. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this, don't you find that you are often both confident and anxious, trusting and fearful, or at least that your mood swings easily from one to the other? I do. It is part of what it means to be a weak human being. And all this talk of enemies and salvation reminded David of his own hopelessness apart from God. He remembered his great need for God's mercy. You know, God is love, but he is absolutely holy. Each one of us is dependent upon the mercy of God. The people of earth, we are dependent on the mercy of God. And now here we see for the very first part of David's request to the Lord was this, just simply hear me. As he had recounted what the Lord had done and who the Lord was, he now moved into a time of request here. And his very first portion of his request is, God, hear me. David was obsessed with God listening to him and hearing him. And all over his Psalms, he's, he's asking for this. Again and again, we see him saying, hear me, O Lord, or give ear to my words, or listen when I cry. Um, it was something he was very concerned with. And those emotional pleas should remind us of a theological fact. And that theological fact is that God does not ignore us. Let's celebrate that for a minute. Man, God does not ignore you when you pray to him. He, he hears and he sees and he knows. He's not far away, he is near. The Bible says that he is attentive to us and that we can have confidence that he hears our prayers. David knew that God heard him because he got an answer. In verse eight, it says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, will I seek. So when David prayed, God's answer was apparently very simple. Seek my face. That's what the Lord answered David with. David was praying to the Lord, please respond, please react, please move on my behalf. Get me out of here. I need rescue. I need deliverance. I need salvation. I need you to take care of these enemies all around me. And the Lord answered to him, you seek me. I'm not even gonna, he didn't even address all of those other things. The Lord just said, seek me, inquire after me. And you know what? David received that. Having gotten an answer from the Lord, he determined to do what God told him to do. Your face, Lord, will I seek. He received it. He said, okay, this is what the Lord said to me. I'm going to do it. The face. So often we want the Lord's ear. We especially like his arm. We ask for his arm a lot, right? Lord, move your arm on my behalf. Lord, give me your ear so I can you know, give all of these requests. But let us be people who seek the face, seek his countenance and his presence and intimate communion. 
And David realized in that moment, he says, what I need to do is, is orient myself to where God has directed me and say, yeah, Lord, your face will I seek. Verse nine says, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Having had a taste of that communion, David was now fixated on that face. Lord, do not hide it. Don't take it away. That's where I find my peace. That's where I find my help. Lord, shine on me as I sit with you. That's his prayer now. This week, another one of those ludicrous articles came out where some supposed expert said he created an artistic composite of what he thinks Jesus looked like, which is so stupid, right? I mean, it's fine if you look at that, but it's stupid. He said, well, we took skulls from you know, people of that era in that region, and we, this is what probably Jesus looked like. Okay, let's take that to today, and let's say that 2,000 years from now, somebody digs up all of our skulls and then uses Photoshop to meld them all together. Is that really going to look like one of us? Oh, it's not going to really look like one of us. No one's going to be able to composite all of our skulls together and be like, well, that's exactly what Gino looked like. And so that, that came out. This is what Jesus looked like. Uh, it's silly, uh, but we look forward to that day when we will finally see Jesus face to face. Oh, we're gonna see the Lord face to face one day. In the meantime, we can walk in the light of his countenance. We can pursue his presence. That should be, one of the, great des- that should be the one great desire of our lives. And the absence of God's presence should be terrifying and unacceptable to us. We know that God is not gonna forsake us, but the idea of not walking in the presence of God should be something that, that generates an emotional response like we see David saying here, hey, Lord, I don't want that. Don't hide your face from me. And we should be concerned with being in the presence of God. Verse 10 says, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. God is more than master. He is a kind and loving father. He will not abandon or reject his children. I was thinking about this and I was reminded that when David was a boy, And Samuel came to town to anoint the next king over Israel. What happened? His father, Jesse, paraded all his brothers out in a line. They had this feast and they had all this stuff going on. And each one was refused by God. Jesse didn't even call David. He didn't even tell Samuel David existed. Samuel had to ask, is there anybody else? Jesse didn't even invite him to the party. He didn't even call him in there to watch the thing. He didn't even say, hey, send a messenger because Sam, to David to bring him in because his big brother's about to be made king over Israel. He just rejected David as even, as even eligible to attend. He's like, David's not gonna be king. He doesn't even need to be here. He just sort of rejected him as the, the, the last guy in the line. And he says, yeah, he can stay out there. He doesn't need to be a part of this. But guess what? God received him. And the Lord said, that's the one. I'm receiving him. And that's the kind of father that the Lord is to us as well. He will not reject his people. He will never leave us or forsake us. He receives us and he loves us. Verse 11 says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. The more David considered his life and the more he considered the Lord, the more he wanted in. The more he thought, man, I just, he wanted to go full on, all out for the Lord. His thoughts of God generated a greater desire to follow God and devote to God and live a godly life. He remembered the reality of his enemies, yes, but his thoughts were consumed with walking the path of the Lord, knowing the Lord more, making progress in the spiritual life, knowing more of God's presence. And again, even David realized that he needed instruction, he needed teaching. Spiritual graduation doesn't take place in this life. We're never gonna arrive until we arrive into eternity. 
That's where it's reserved for the next life. Verse 12, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have arisen against me and such as breathe out violence. The end of David's request here indicates that he was in the middle of a present urgent threat and crisis. I mean, this is happening right now. This isn't a theoretical, you know, dark night of the soul. I mean, he's in the middle of it and he is in trouble for sure. But that didn't stop him from worshiping and enjoying the Lord and getting his heart right with the Lord and writing this song. While others were breathing out violence, he was breathing out praise. And so what about me? What am I breathing out in my life? Uh, violence? Am I breathing out complaining? Am I breathing out criticism? Man, God help us to be people who breathe out grace and praise in the situations we find ourselves in. And so we've seen David recount, we've seen him request, and now in verses 13 and 14, we come to the resolution. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. His faith in God was not just for the eternal realm. It impacted his present circumstances. Well, good is faith if it does not apply to reality, right? I mean, David said, I would have lost hope if this was all theoretical, if this was all mystical, if this was all just, you know, something I sort of ethereally hope for. This faith needs to make an actual difference, and it did in David's life. In the land of the living, God intends to reach out to us and strengthen us and lift us up and teach us and reveal to us as we seek him. And then finally, verse 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David does not want us to miss out on what he's got. That's nice. I mean, he's been spending this time between him and the Lord. It's a very personal psalm, and it seems like we are eavesdropping on a, on a wonderful time of intimate communion between him and God. And then all of a sudden he realizes, oh man, there's people reading this. And he says, I don't want them to miss out on what I'm experiencing. Here at the close, he gives a prescription so that the reader can get in on all of this, so that the reader too can experience the kind of peace and the kind of filling and the kind of light that God provides. If we want this kind of peace, this kind of hope, this kind of strength, here's what we do. Wait, enjoy the Lord, commune with him, wait some more. It says, wait and be, wait and be, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. And so we are to be strengthened, to be filled, to be excited about our faith. And waiting on the Lord, man, that's a tough lesson. It's one that I just, I have a hard time learning in my own life. And there have been situations in life where the Lord has used, you know, this passage and other waiting on the Lord passages just to try to start teaching me things about this principle. But it's a hard lesson to learn. To the natural man, it can feel excruciating. I, I, felt, I feel that way when the Lord asked me to wait. Man, naturally, I just think this is excruciating. I do not want to wait. Can't we get to the next thing? But, you know, when we're waiting on the Lord, the spiritual man bursts out in growth when we wait on the presence of God. Because spiritual waiting isn't hibernating. It's not like we're just waiting for the bus. Spiritual waiting is active. It's worshipful. It's hopeful. It's receptive. It's the proper position to receive, in fact. And it can be difficult, it can be very difficult, but it is key according to the scriptures. Take it from David, who had more than a little to say to us about all of these things. And so wait on the Lord. He is our light and our salvation. He is our strength. He is our shield. And he is ready to communion with us right now as we recount to ourselves who he is and what he does. And as we bring our requests to him and as we resolve to be his people waiting in his presence.